The journey to being a successful creative entrepreneur is filled with challenges, hard work, and occasional high points. You have the opportunity to minimize the challenges and hard work by learning from experts, mentors, and leaders that have traveled the same road before you. The Creative Genius Podcast celebrates you and your hard work and helps you shortcut the path to profit and renewed passion. Enjoy this episode with your host, Gail Doby and Aaron Weir, co-founders of Gail Doby Coaching and Consulting. We are talking today with award-winning designer, Jamie Drake on Building Your Brand. Jamie is the co-founder of the multidisciplinary interior design firm, Drake Anderson, located in New York City. Jamie brings his singular, exuberant design sensibility, which he's developed over 40 years to every single project. And he also designs luxury products for the home and his collections include everything from carpets and rugs and furniture to fabrics, lighting, bath fixtures, and accessories. His work has been featured in virtually every design publication, including Architectural Digest, El Decor, House Beautiful, Interior Design, and more. Jamie has held a spot for several years on the prestigious Architectural Digest AD100 list and the El Decor A list, and was also designated by House Beautiful as a masterclass designer. Jamie is extremely active in many causes and currently serves on the boards of the Alpha Workshops, the New York City Trust, Kipps Bay Boys and Girls Club, and Parsons School of Design. You can check out Jamie's portfolio at drakeanderson.com and be sure to follow Drake Anderson on Facebook and Instagram. Well, Jamie, I'm so excited to talk to you today. I don't know if you remember this. This is a long time ago, 10 years ago. I interviewed you for one of our programs at the very beginning of when we started our business. I do remember that, Gail. Oh, good. I was reached out. I was like, oh, my old friend who I haven't seen in a decade. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And at least we do get to see each other today on Zoom, though. So it's great to have you back, and I am so excited to hear what you've been up to because I understand that you have now been in the business for 40 years. Is that right? Uh, 42 years this year. I graduated Parsons School of Design in 1978. Oh, my goodness. So that is amazing. We're about the same age, actually. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, great. So in that last 10 years, what were the big things that have happened to you? Well, these last 10 years, there was continued growth. There was the decision that I made five years ago that as I was nearing 40 years in business, that maybe it was time to step back and look at how to do things maybe a little differently. I was definitely feeling stress and I thought it was time to join forces with somebody else and have a business partner to share the joys and the pain. And I made a short list of candidates with one who was clearly my number one candidate. And I assumed he would say no, since he'd already established his own business and was making quite a bit of traction. But I'm very happy to report he said yes. And Caleb Anderson and I uh, joined forces um, a little over four years ago. And we are now Drake Anderson. That is so terrific. And I saw that when that came out a few years ago, and it seems to make so much sense to me. It's like Aaron is my right hand. We've worked together 15 years now. And she'll continue the legacy once I decide to retire, which will be never. (laughs) She'll never get rid of me. Never say never, Gail. (laughs) Oh, that's true. Always be open to possibilities. Exactly. So one of the things I know that you're doing right now is you're co-chair of the Kips Bay Decorators Showhouse. So how is that going considering all the events that we have going on in our lives around us? Right. Well, we certainly are living in unprecedented times. We've been Delta a one-two punch between the pandemic and now between needing to wake up to a racial injustice that's been 
systemic for centuries. And I have been co-chair of the Kipps Bay Boys and Girls Club Decorator Showhouse for quite a few years now. And um, this year we had to postpone or cancel our showhouse in the spring. We still have some hope that we might do it in the fall, but I would say that at this point, it looks like we'll move to 2021. Um, what we are doing, what the, what the organization in general has done is we've expanded beyond just New York City, our traditional home base. And we have a beach show house, and, which was quite a big success in the early winter of this year before the coronavirus crisis. And we are going forward with a Dallas show house, our premier Dallas show house, which will open at the end of September. That in- is fabulous. That's yeah. great news. We were in New York. Gosh, when was it, Gail? It was last year, wasn't it? It was. And then and, I was there in March when we, the pandemic was starting. Right. But we took a, one of our groups through the Kip Space Show House and it was phenomenal. It was just um, such an experience and such a delight. And it's so fun to see design in such a powerful way to see, you know, I remember that staircase that was just all the colors and design on the staircase. I don't think y'all could get me out of the staircase when that, we were there. That really blew everybody away and, yeah. and was a, a great opportunity for that designer, for Sasha Beekoff. And, and from that, she really had huge numbers of opportunities. She was already established and a working designer, but she wasn't so well known. And that blew her out of the water. Showhouses can be a great, great tool for marketing as well as helping charities. So, Jamie, what led you to become an interior designer? I always wanted to be an interior designer. I, I loved things and objects. I grew up in a house that had been done by a professional interior designer. And I think I started not 42 years ago, but, you know, 57 years ago by self-appointment. I was the decorator of my backyard fort with my best friend. It was a pit. It. A pit. He was in charge of hugging, lugging the rocks around and putting them in place. And I was in charge of decorating. And I found all these antiques in a barn. Um, I say antiques loosely. It was an abandoned barn that was over the hill and down in the vale. And there were dirty old bottles and rusted out wash basins and pitchforks and rake heads. And I brought these things up and I arranged them into vignettes. And so it was a natural trajectory for me to become an interior designer. I love it. I love it. I know we all have those stories. I remember always like looking through the magazines on what the next comforter was going to be for my bed and coming up with the reasons why I needed something different for my room and to, to change it around. So my mom would tell me to go clean my room and I would end up completely rearranging my room every single time. So I think, I think we are all kind of out of that same mold. Yes. What about you, Gail? Oh, definitely. And, and I remember, I hate to tell you this, but my first color that I picked for a bedroom was a light lilac color <laughs> many, many years ago. Pardon me? Sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think about, about it now with all the little girls that always like pink and lavender, and I was one of those for sure. I love it. So, Jamie, what was the vision for your company when you first started? You know, I was sort of founded my firm accidentally. It was not by design. I, um, as I said, I graduated Parsons School of Design in 1978. And literally two days after graduation, I was approached by a dear friend who was also at Parsons, but in the fashion department. And she said her boyfriend and the boyfriend's father, who were, was a very wealthy man, had decided to buy, move to new apartments on Fifth Avenue in a brand new building. And they thought maybe I'd like to do the decorating. And I was like, okay, sure. And uh, there was the beginning of my firm. What a great opportunity. It was, it was, and it grew from there. So how has the vision for your company changed over the years? 
You know, I, I tend to be a rather intuitive person and I don't have five-year plans and 10-year plans. I like to say I have a plan of what I'm doing tomorrow or next week or on my summer vacation. In fact, I, I have developed over the decades more planning instincts. I would say that one of the great things about my partnership with Caleb is, is that he is much more of a planner and an organizer and a scheduler. And his strengths are ones that are, are my weaknesses. But my my vision for my company has always been to supply great design, do it as efficient a manner as possible in an industry that has efficiency issues, and be transparent and direct and honest with my clients, to give them my opinions honestly and hopefully always diplomatically, because sometimes they might be um, a little uh, anti what their vision might be. But remember, it's their homes and it's their money, and I need to respect that. That makes so much sense. And I think a lot of designers are a little bit scared of their clients and they don't always say what they mean. And do you feel that you were always in control or did you have to learn that over time that you had to be a little bit stronger? I always tell groups of uh, young designers or students that one of the things that I did learn a valuable lesson on one of those two first projects was that I didn't stand up and really give my opinion. And the son's apartment, who was a peer of mine, um, and then the same age or a year or two older, turned out fabulously. And the father, who was a self-made man of the world, was full of ideas, and I just cowed to all of them. And it was a disaster. It was <laughs> absolutely a disaster, and I think he knew it too. But there was never any harsh feelings, and we continued to be friends and throughout his life. But that was a great lesson early on about making sure that you try to stay true to your design vision. That's so important to do. And also, I think it's important to have an ability to be adaptable and also to make really good decisions. But uh, along the way, I'm sure you have had many instances where you've had challenges. What are a couple of the challenges you could share with us and maybe some stories about what you learned from that? We could fast forward from, from my first projects to today. And I think that I have, over the years at times when there's been crises and challenges and business hasn't looked so good, such as after the financial crash of 2008, in 2009, we took a project that was a good-sized project that I really wanted, partially because it was a good-sized project, but partially also because it was the only one on the horizon. It was the only one. And the Mm -hmm. client interviewed for nine months and interviewed lots of people. And I took it even though it had a bad feeling. And it turned into be a disaster and I eventually had to fire the client and not so politely. And that's a good lesson. Yesterday, Caleb and I had a conversation with a client who's been talking to us since December. Now, clearly the world has very changed since December and I can understand a lot of stops and starts at this point along the way. But there are people of means who own this apartment and it needs to be done and they're living in it already. But yesterday, the husband joined the call that they requested. And he was just such a bully and so dismissive about what we charge for our services and why would they be worth that. Caleb and I got off the call and said, it's a great size project. It's a decent project. The wife we like very much, but we, we don't want to work with them. And even if he backs down at this point, this is the second time he's been a bully. The first time we met him, he was a complete bully. And that will be the trajectory throughout the project, I'm sure. So we're going to turn it down. And it's a multi, multi multi-million dollar project. And I'm not sure those are hanging out everywhere these days. 
Well, Jamie, I think that's wise that you understood that from the very beginning, that it was time to turn that client down because I've always found that the clients that are bad in the very first couple of interviews are going to be the absolute worst people ever that you could work with because they're on their best behavior when you first work with them. Yes. So last night when we got off the call with those clients, Caleb immediately called me and said, I don't want to work with those people. But by this morning, he was sort of thinking about it. And I said, but Caleb, we we said that you didn't want to work with them. And I thought about it. And I immediately said to you last night, I not immediately, but after thinking about it for an hour, I said, I agree. And I have to remember back that the few times, the three clients I've taken who've over-negotiated, taken forever to hire you, manipulated the pricing, Mm -hmm. have always been a disaster. And interestingly enough, I don't think I remember actually terminating a project with a client before the last 10 years, and it might be even shorter, eight years or so. I'm not saying that no clients ever didn't end projects, but sometimes it usually was they would just filter away. You'd kind of wear each other out and you just would sort of let it go, let it go into the sunset. These were conscious terminations that were started by me. Wise decisions, because they always cost you money in the end. Yes. And the more you have those red flags, those were three red flags right there. And if you'd gone forward, definitely you would have ended up being very unhappy with the results. Right. You know, Gail, I think we we work in a very interesting industry, which is the best clients hire you after meeting you one, two, three times. That's basically Mm -hmm. it. We don't know each other very well, but they have to have that. You have to have that initial click on both sides Mm -hmm. and a client who's going to empower you and trust you. Okay. Many still question things along the way, but- that's part of the, the, the journey, but there has to be that kind of immediate thing. Well, this leads into another question, which is how do you fire a client or how do you decide, right? What do you say to them when you decide not to take that project? Well, this it's different to just say at the beginning, I'm not going to take your project. And I suggested that instead of writing an email to the two of them, because all of our communication basically has been with the wife, who we like and respect, is to call her and basically be honest in a diplomatic way and explain that. And I think she's going to murder him. him with a frying pan. <laughs> He's been working on this in, in, in love with our work since December. Mm. So I think in that case, that a call will be best. You know, I'm going to sound like we're very, very picky here at Drake Anderson, but we also wrote another prospective client who only came to us recently, like within two weeks ago, that we didn't think it was a good fit for us and we wouldn't be able to deliver what they wanted in the way that we traditionally work. And they wrote back like, can we still have our call? Please, let's have our call and try and work something out. And, and they're in a bit of a pinch and they seem like lovely, lovely people. It isn't about them being bullies or anything, although he, he kind of tried to over-negotiate and again, was kind of shocked at our, our fees. And in this particular case, because it's an unusual project, a great portion of it needed to be done hourly. Because it wasn't a complete project. We were coming in sort of late. He was shocked by our hourly rate. Okay, it's New York City. We charge a lot, but that's our rates. And he started the call by saying, we literally both, he and his wife, were at the verge of tears to get our email saying that we didn't want to take their project. And we're still contemplating that. And Caleb and I will have another discussion today and try and either come to a resolution or suggest somebody else to them. It's so hard to say, to let somebody go. It hurts their feelings for sure. Well, and that, you know, that's not what it's about. It's about meeting their expectations and us delivering a product that we can be proud of. Mm -hmm. 
But those are very different circumstances than firing a client during the course of a project. Mm-hmm. And the one I mentioned in 2008, the husband I liked very much, but the wife was extremely difficult to work with. She would point to something 10 feet up on the ceiling at the crown molding and say, don't you think that should be three eighths of an inch instead of one quarter of an inch? Oh my gosh. And that was throughout the entire project, the entire project. And eventually I just had it, had it when it came to a point where she did not approve of a very costly installation of millwork that was forty or $50,000 because of, of some strange little thing. (laughs) <laughs> and wanted it ripped out and us to pay for it to be replaced. Mm. Well, it takes away your joy from what we do, yeah. right? Like we do this because this is, we spend how many, how, what's the percentage of hours you say in your life, Gail, that you spend working? And well, you always have all these depends stats. on the person. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, we spend so much of our time working and doing what we're blessed with and our gifts and to not be able to enjoy that because of clients that are just not the right fit or um, don't fit your ideal client profile, I think is, it's great that you have an awareness of that and you're a consciousness that you're really paying attention to. I dread it. I don't embrace it. I dread it. But you know, you get to a certain point. So that was the one, two of the others were fixed fee for a big portion of it for the construction design and management. And because of, again, clients questioning everything and redesigning everything. We were just bleeding money, bleeding money. And fixed fee, I actually always find very hard to guess. It's throwing a dart at something. And so I really prefer to work at our standard way of working, which is typically markups, both on the construction aspects, as well as the the furnishings and the FF&E. And I just struggle to figure out fixed fees. And so generally I avoid them. Well, it's probably a good thing. What I find for some people too, we actually created a tool, which I will share with you, Jamie. I don't know if it'll be of use to you, but it is a calculator that you can use to calculate fees by square foot or by a fixed fee, however you choose. So I'll share that with you after the uh, podcast today. But understandably, many people actually decide not to do it because they underbid by at least 50%. That's the traditional number that I find with all my clients. So that's interesting that you said 50% because I said to Caleb, well, let's do an exercise about this. This client who doesn't want to pay hourly wants a fixed fee, but was also sort of outraged by our hours, or I wouldn't say outraged, surprised. And I assigned numbers. I said, let's assign the numbers and then add 50%. So I guess you're saying I should add 100%, but at least I was getting closer um, to what I thought. But you know, I actually think he, he'll be better off if, if we just charge straight hourly on that. Mm-hmm. And it's still profitable for us, which is why our numbers are so high. And we're in a business. We're not in a, a not-for-profit. I do plenty of that not-for-profit work in other ways. So I do plenty of not-for-profit work in other ways with board calls. Uh, Kips Bay, as you mentioned, I just got off a New York Community Trust board call where we have put together a a COVID emergency response fund and have dispersed almost $107 million in the last few months. So there's a lot of opportunity to give back, but what I do daytime is not a hobby. I I often say what I do is a business. I love it, but it's a business. If I wanted a hobby, I'd collect stamps and I have no interest in collecting. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So Jamie, at the peak of your business, how many employees did you have on your team? You know, over the years, you grow and you grow and you grow. And by the beginning of 2008, I had 24 employees. And then the crash came and I had to do 
one cut and then another cut. And I was advised by a business consultant, don't do them one at a time. It's like little, little slices into the whole organization, the corpus of your firm. And it was the most painful thing. And I did four and I did another four. And, you know, I think if you have to terminate an employee because their performance, that's not so difficult. You know, they either don't have the right fit to the culture or they're not performing their job right. But when you have to terminate people because you don't have enough business, you feel like the captain of a ship that's just gone into a storm and you don't know how to steer it. Of course, it's how you survive. And of course, we're in another moment now where we had to look at things very difficultly and hard decisions about furloughing people, who to furlough, payroll rollbacks. Luckily, the PPP did help. That's good. We brought people back. We restored salaries for those on a certain level. So 24 was the peak. And today we're 10. And early last year, we were 16. And the lesson from the 24 was we tended to stay around 15, 16 for a decade. And it was fine. And we did bigger volume. And we were, I guess, more efficient. I think when we got to 24, we were kind of flabby. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, we're definitely, you know, hearing even from you know, our clients that this is the time that you're really able to see who needs to stay and who needs to go. And it's really giving people an opportunity to truly create that dream team. Yes. Yep. And what we're going to come out of with this, I think, is, is heightened efficiency ever yes. more. There won't be maybe as much warm and fuzzy to it because we're mm-hmm. going to be ever more driven to te- technology, which you can see is not my great strength. But we have continued to work from home these last 11, 12 weeks and utilizing Zoom to its fullest, designing projects with the team. And we have organized thrice a week team calls. Then we break away and keep certain members to actually pull up the drawings. It's not as easy for me, who's old school and never learned CAD. I still like to walk over with a pencil. It would be much quicker for me to walk over with a pencil and say, here, do it this way. (laughs) Then having one person control the cursor and say, no, that corner over there. I, you know, I'm talking all like I'm, like I'm a cartographer. The north <laughs> corner, 180 degrees to the south. What's your best advice about hiring and managing a team, especially going through these virtual times right now? So my best advice I took myself, and I didn't realize how well it would, would work out, was take a partner because Caleb has those strengths much more than I. He is a, a more analytical person. I am more operatic. So he plots things out. He schedules. He creates a schedule for production of the design phase of a project. Things I never did. Never did. And so that would be number one. Number two is being kind always and being empathetic. I don't tend to be someone who loses their temper easily or quickly. But when I do, then it has some impact because then I really must be feeling something. And I have to say, as the leader, You know, I guess one of my gifts is a great memory for detail and this and that and being able to envision things. 95% of the time I'm right, which helps when you correct people. (laughs) That does help. Right. And I do try to present it in a way as a learning. I don't just say, do this. I say, do this because these are the ramifications. These are the implications. You haven't envisioned. You forgot about what's next to it, et cetera. So I think that it's about trying to have a learning moment with your staff at the same time as getting the product right. 
Right. So do you feel like Caleb's attention to detail and just realizing that right now people do have to work virtually has kind of helped with the patience factor and managing a team virtually? I know it takes a lot of patience because you're not right there and you can't have that moment in the hallway or, you know, get out your red pen and start redlining drawings right off the bat. No, he steered it very well. And and I think we're both surprised how efficiently it is. And and we did... Um, besides all the clients that we've told, we're turning our shoulders up at you and not taking you when, what the heck? This is like the, the worst economy since the 1930s. And we're turning down projects. The good sign is that we actually have, we signed one new project, one who did begin to discuss with us, reached us first in February and a little bit halting through this, but they hired us five weeks ago. We made our first presentation to them after three weeks, which is actually and it was pretty evolved, the presentation. It just wasn't mood boards. It was multiple options to the plans for the reconstruction of their brand new apartment, the layout, three furniture plans. So it was conceptual, but it was very developed. And I think that's very efficient. And another client who signed the contract right at the beginning of all of this, we also designed extremely complex things that we'll be presenting to them next week with 3D renderings of very detailed and thought out kitchens and bathrooms, as well as the first phase construction plans and elevations. And all of that accomplished working from home and working together via Zoom. You may not know this, but we have been virtual for 11 years Mm -hmm. and we've been in business for 12. So for us, this is normal. And when this happened, it was so great because we had so many clients that said, you know, I just had no idea how well this would work for us when people did work at home because they're more efficient. They don't have to commute. They're able to focus. They don't have interruptions. And honestly, it's such a great way to work. The downside is you almost work too much because you are at home. Right. I, I've been shocked through all this. And we have all of our construction projects came to a grinding halt. So there's no site meetings to go to. There's no billing to come out of it. How, even with taking those out of the equation, how busy we have been. Mm-hmm. And that every day is like an eight, nine hour day. I would love that. <laughs> That's why you're such a, a valuable asset because you have all these years of experience working this way. As I said, I, I miss the connection, the warm and fuzzy. And I, I, I live by myself. I've been basically alone for 11 weeks. And you get wow. a little antsy, but I'm very blessed to live in a beautiful place with wonderful views. And I don't have the beach behind me as you do at the moment, Gail. <laughs> but I have beautiful trees waving in the wind outside the windows ahead of me. That's so wonderful. Well, let me switch gears with you and talk to you a little bit about product lines. I know that we connected through Theodore Alexander this time, and you have a brand new line coming out for them. Tell me a little bit about how you started designing products for manufacturers and what was your goal when you decided to do that? My first and foremost goal was to diversify my income stream and increase my income stream. Mm -hmm. And I have friends who have been very successful in licensed product but who also always said to me, Jamie, for every 10 licenses, if one of them actually makes me a decent amount of money, then I think it's a success. You know, it's not this magic pot of money that just opens and flows. And my experience has been similar. Some of them have been quite successful, others less so. And they take a while to build. First of all, it takes a couple of years to get, usually from contract signing, to a product launch. A year and a half, two years is typical. And then just like any new product, it might take six months for orders to start to roll in. 
my relationship with Theodore Alexander now is, I think, five years. And yes, we're, we just launched some new products. Of course, we didn't launch them in the traditional format of High Point Spring Market. They've been launched virtually and very well done by the marketing team there. Primarily case goods, beautiful tables, cabinets, consoles, dining table. And I'm really excited about them. And they turned out beautifully. They're gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. I have as well bath accessories with La Brazelle for many years and new ones are in production to come out in the sampling process. Faucets with THG France, some rugs with Stark, some others with Safavia. And over the years, I did have a fabric collection. Love to have another one at this point. I'm ready to do a new one. So I think that I enjoy designing the products. We design a lot of custom product already for our projects. So there are ideas there that have been worked out and um, I enjoy it. It's good. I couldn't retire on it yet. Well, most people say the same thing. So tell me, though, what do you think, if somebody is interested in doing licensing, what do they need to know that you know now after all these years of doing that? Well, I think first and foremost, they need to look in the mirror honestly and really honestly, and it's not always pretty to see our pimples, but do you have the stuff to license product? It isn't just having good designs. Most manufacturers want somebody with a name. And so you have to have some sort of profile, high profile in the industry or the consumer industry to present them and to get people's attention. I think it's the rare product design that we see and love, even if it's the most imaginative, that is done as a licensed deal without a name attached to it. Mm -hmm. Those those are usually done as fixed fee deals or in-house design teams with no name attached to it. And so that's number one. And number two is being aware that there's a lot that goes into it before you actually get to present the designs to a manufacturer. You know, there's legal aspects, complicated contracts that need to be written to protect them and yourself. And that can all take quite a while. Mm. What is your most exciting moment in the world of having designed products? What is it that you have been most excited to introduce? You know, I'm almost always most excited by my latest things. So right now with Theodore Alexander, it's the latest things to come to market. I have a beautiful serpent collection that interprets snakes in a, in a unique way, um, a motif that is prevalent, but I think that I have a real voice with it and a beautiful tale, one that eats its own tail, classic, mm-hmm. the Ororos in, in Greek mythology. I, another group was based on a necklace I saw in an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And the necklace was actually made out of paper, although I didn't know that at first glance. And I took that essence of that, which is very fine linear lines gilded, and Theodore Alexander executed them beautifully in, gilded, in, a, in a gilded resin with wooden tops. Absolutely spectacular. So I'm always somebody who likes new. And so I'm always thinking, what's the newest thing to me? What projects in the office am I most excited about? The ones that just came in. I think we've got a starter on our hands here, Gail, which I, I think can so. relate to. <laughs> we always uh, joke around about how Gail is the starter and I'm the finisher on our team. And we're always kind of in the mix of the projects that we're doing. And she's already on to the next several things to start at the same time. So I guess I'm, I'm an optimist. I always walk in to every project and I envision that it's going to be fabulous. They don't always turn out that way because of the bumps that go along the path, which could be client bumps, budget bumps, lots of bumps. But I always absolutely start off thinking it's going to be the best project ever. So what inspires you the most or who inspires you the most? You know, I'm very lucky. I never, I never have a lack of ideas. I don't come to writer's block, designer's block. I can be as inspired walking 
one block to the newsstand that I've done every day for 11 weeks now, past storefronts I've seen for eight years now, and still see things and see things in the sidewalk, see a brick in a building a block away up that inspires me as much as I, I have by going to Shanghai or Beijing or Marrakesh or Bali. I, I find a lot of inspiration going to museum shows, art galleries, and art and antique fairs, and I hope that they will come back because although there are new digital ways that we are getting our culture fixed, it's not quite the same as viewing it in real life. Right. What's new in your life? What's new? I returned to the stove. <laughs> I, <had> given, <laughs> I love it. I had given up cooking about 20 years ago. Maybe it's more like 22 at this point. And I basically eat every lunch and dinner out except maybe two a month and even breakfast. Typically, I don't cook or prepare. I would get it out. And um, I was a very ambitious cook and quite a good cook in my day. And like riding a bicycle, I didn't forget. And I've been rather enjoying it. And it is a wonderful kind of therapeutic exercise and distraction in these difficult times. Well, and doesn't look as if you have added on any COVID pounds. So that's good. <laughs> no COVID-19. <laughs> Luckily, I have not added on COVID-19 pounds. I have added on inches. I'm probably at COVID-21 by now. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Jamie, what do you see as the future of the industry? This is a very tough question, I know, but it's something that a lot of people are thinking about, especially because we've seen really since 2007, we started seeing the internet come in, then we had 2008 happen and the financial crash, and now we've got COVID and we have riots and we have changes where people can't get out and do what they've traditionally done. So what do you see in the future? Well, I do see a lot in the future. I don't know if it'll come true or not, but I think that there's lots of opportunity and there's a lot of challenges. I think that in the high-end residential market, there will actually be a, a burst of work that comes out of this, of people being sequestered at home. We've had clients really seriously start to think about knocking down their existing house, second home, building something bigger that will accommodate their children as they move into full adulthood, that they're envisioning their children married with grandchildren and wanting staff rooms to service that lifestyle and family. And they have moved to the point that they're actually starting to reach out to the architects I recommended. We have other clients who have mentioned redoing things and, and fixing things up. And I think that there are those who were already on the path to starting projects and they didn't put them on hold. So I, I think that there's great hope at the high end. I think there'll be those who seek a new non-primary residence or a, a third residence that is outside of an urban center, but close enough to get to that it's not a challenge. I think the challenges will be for the hospitality industry. I think that's going to be a long road to come back. And I can't imagine there will be a lot of new construction and redesign in the next five years or so. I think the opportunities are going to be about new product development which will be antibacterial, have a healthier point of view. There's going to be a lot of wellness. Driving around New York City, my hometown, after the bad actors, bad acting of the last few nights, not the protesters, but the bad actors, I comparing Chanel, whose windows were smashed to smithereens on Madison Avenue, oh to Hermes, who was cracked but never broke, I think that it will be an, a reminder to use quality product for certain sectors of the industry and with certain products. I think there'll be thought given to protecting your assets. I think there will be finally in our industry, I, I, I fear that the country as a whole will be slow to adapt to looking at the systemic racial bias and changing that. But I think our industry can change. 
And I think our industry will have a heightened focus on that. I know at Kips Bay Boys and Girls Club, we've worked very consciously over the last few years to make sure we've had diversity. Um, our industry isn't famously very diverse. And so it's an opportunity for us to support those members of communities of color and difference. Well, difference. I'm going to call myself out on that. They're not different. We're all humans. But to support those, to have a bigger voice and show that other people can have success in this industry. I love that. We talked about that recently and we've been talking to one of the organizations and I think it'll be really fun because we are trying to involve that diversity in one of our summer events. And it's called our Genius Exchange coming up. We're planning to have Corey Damon Jenkins have a conversation with us and talk about adversity and diversity in the design world. So I'm looking forward to that. And, and Corey's a great voice. He's been a great voice. Oh, he's amazing. Throughout his career, he's been a great voice, but now he's been a great voice letting us all try and learn about the experiences that we mm-hmm. can never relate to, really, that we can only imagine. Um, I'm proud to say that I wrote the foreword to Corey's new book that will be coming out soon. Oh, oh that's so exciting. Yeah. I was very yeah. honored that he asked me, very touched. And he did Kips Bay um, two years ago. Mm, that's fabulous. Well, I can't wait to have that be a part of our event because I think that that's a, an opportunity that we have in the design world to understand that point of view. Yes. And it's sad that we had to have this happen for this to come to the forefront, but I'm glad it's going to be a chance. Right. What's sad is that innocent people get murdered. Mm-hmm. That is sad. Well, this has been a fabulous interview. Jamie, I just think back to our 10 years ago. I remember your story about the Ford at that time, and it's just as charming as it was then. And I'm just so delighted that we had this opportunity to chat. Well, you and you and Aaron are masters at what you do. And the only thing we didn't master is how to silence that thing. <laughs> uh, when I'm back in the office, my IT guy, that will be one thing I need him to work on. There you go. Actually, I, I bet you can actually have him do it remotely. I didn't even think of that until now. I bet you could have them do it remotely. Okay, there you go. (laughs) So, Jamie, we always love to end our podcast with three things that our listeners can take away that they can implement right away into their business or into their lives. Do you want to share those takeaways with us? So if I was going to offer three takeaways today, I would say coming out of the conversation we just had is be true to your design self and make sure you try to explain and, and hold your stance with something you believe in, if the client isn't accepting it quickly. I think secondly, would be to make sure to trust the warning signs. None of us like to turn down work, but if there are big warning signs, then you'll be much happier in the long run if you do turn it down. And thirdly, go forward in life optimistically and with your eyes open and accepting of new possibilities, new technologies, and new experiences. I love that. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jamie. Okay, my pleasure. My yeah, pleasure. we look forward to seeing you at our Genius Exchange this summer. Yes, yes. And um, to our <laughs> listeners, we look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs> <laughs>